Hiya. Welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability and the built environment. This week, it's the three of us, me, Dan, Jeff, and Alex. We are joined by our erstwhile co-host, Duncan Smith, now of River Clyde Homes. And we're also joined by his colleague, Richard Orr, head of asset and regeneration at the same place. It's quite incestuous because as well as being the co-host, these guys are fellow signatories to the Memorandum of Understanding with the Buildings Action Coalition. Now, we've been trailing this episode for some time. I mean, sort of, not directly. Like, it's properly brilliant what they are attempting there. They're approaching asset renewal and development with a long-term vision that's setting out to address fuel poverty, demand reduction, remediation of inadequate work from the past, because... Most building work was inadequate in the past to the challenges of the future rather than something specific there. Well, I mean, everyone's got issues. What's really tickled us is they're doing some fascinating work in looking at localised energy and heat production, as well as distribution, because that's essential, I suppose. And on top of that, they're looking at community wealth building and using the work they're doing as a catalyst to improving the whole local and regional environment. It is properly amazing. Now, right enough, there's a lot that's not yet set in stone, but it's brilliant hearing folk talk with that sort of ambition. What they're doing, and we touch on the fact that there's a lot of pilot studies going on here. What they're doing is they're trying out some amazing ideas which are revolutionary in their application, but not necessarily revolutionary in the detail. You know, I think as Jeff points out, it's a lot of tried and tested methods, strategies, just they've never been packaged quite like this. This is an exemplar case in building for the future. So harking back to the Robin McAlpine episode, which if you're new to the podcast and you haven't listened to that one, go back. It was a double header. I'll put it in the show notes. These fellas are building an alternative, one that's designed for social housing, but it's replete with solutions that are just as viable for the private sector to at least learn from, even if not institute wholesale. So rather than listen to me blow smoke about it, we'll get straight into it. Now, because it was a lot of chit-chat while we were catching up at the beginning, you enter the fray in the midst of that, talking about me having shaved my head recently, going bald, beards, domestic terror. If you don't want to hear about that, skip four minutes on and you'll join us talking about Duncan's experiences of extreme heat in Italy. But uh, yeah, there you go. Hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Oh, oh my I, God. I was like uh, minded, oh man, I'm just going bald. So I just uh, got to a point where, oh, fit, just get it all off. But with the beard as well, like it's kind of like Limp Bizkit or something like that. some sort of American sports rock kind of... Um... <laughs> 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 I often wonder this as it's somebody who's also losing my hair, uh, Dan, is how often men that seem to start to lose it up there start to grow it down there. Like their body has to keep keep an equilibrium <laughs> of the volume of hair. Like really, that's, you know? that's that's a big issue in metal communities, I believe. You know, it's not like Samson, but long hair is an issue. So I had a friend who started going, he had very lustrous hair for a few years when I knew him, and then it started thinning quite severely. And he was debating, he was very clean shaven as well. Bonnie lad, very pretty. 
and he was debating like the value of getting a beard in early ready for yeah. when the switch had to be made because like long hair and a ponytail i had one of them uh in lockdown at one point not not willfully no no cassie just discovered like if she got a hair bobble out she could tie it back and then take a photo of me from behind like one of those <laughs> aging wait nipples. a minute this sounds as a description goes this sounds like a, an entirely different story you're about to tell us. That's, I mean, as <laughs> conscious this is being recorded at a certain... Well, it's quite fitting. So I think the, the first time I met you, Richard, Duncan and I engaged you. Rather than talking about like writing that press release for River Clyde Holmes, we actually engaged you in a conversation. It was about our experiences with domestic terrorists. <laughs> like, Scottish domestic terror... And uh, the Republican <laughs> Army. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, th- that that just sounds like a random Tuesday afternoon for me. You, you should come to some <laughs> of our team meetings, Duncan and I. Very rarely talk about energy stuff. We, <laughs> we accidentally stray into it as a consequence of where, what we've been talking about. But um... <laughs> well, that's part of our methodology as researchers: have a plan going in, know what your agenda is, but let the conversation meander. So Are you, you don't. Only talk about people's holidays. Uh, yeah, exactly. Speaking of meandering, um, Duncan, um, given that you're, I mean, your wife or your wife's family, are they like Scottish Italian? Is that it? Yeah, so her dad's Italian, yeah. yeah. So they don't have much uh, family in the, in Italy who are going through the heart. Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. family, yeah. Yeah, we, we go back, yeah. There's a lot, there's a big extended family there, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, any feedback from them on the horrors in the last week or well, so? We, yeah, I mean, we were there um, last year. It's interesting. So we were there last year. We couldn't go this year because uh, my daughter broke her arm. So we were scheduled to go two weeks ago or a week ago today. And my daughter broke her arm, so she had a plaster. So we, could, we couldn't we couldn't go. And it actually turned out pretty, you know, kind of fortuitous because yeah, forty forty one. Why did your daughter broke her arm basically? Yeah. But yeah, it's forty one point eight now. It's really interesting. We we went to um, sort of extended cousins last year. It reminded me of Australia, and you in Australia where. Yeah, um, we kind of rocked up the house, and it was probably hitting forty degrees, thirty or something like that. Anyway, they're inside. All the windows are closed. All the curtains are down. You know, it's it's almost it's almost like what you would do in winter time. You know, because you're trying to stop light, you're trying to stop heat getting in. Mm. But um, where we were staying last year um, was a wee bit on the coast, so it had a nice breeze. But at night, it was it was horrible. It was really really warm, and there was big wildfires there, which really weren't reported outside the kind of regional. I feel like that's a, where we go is a it's it's not a tourist destination. In fact, no one speaks English. Not so, even yeah, you. Yeah. Not even me, mate. Not even me. I, I, I've I've managed to master the art of saying mi piace, non capisco italiano so well that people then speak to me in Italian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so pretty horrible, to be honest with you, pretty horrible. And I think it's interesting because a lot of the things that we are doing just now might not be around the mitigation of those types of temperatures, but not far off. You know, we are starting to think, right, if we are making these buildings really airtight, really, and, you know, obviously have a greater flexibility with new build in terms of orientation, in terms of how you build marine climate mitigation. But I think we need to really consider the effects of warmer summers, hotter summers with what we're doing. You know, we've got a Nordan window spec, we've got EWR, we've got, you know, something approaching Interfit, something between um, ACB's new build standard. And and what you're really conscious of doing is putting someone in there that, yeah, you might be solving fuel poverty, but you're giving them, you know, 40, 30, 40 days of 30 degree heat at night. 
So I'd be pleased to no, go. Yeah, that has to be a consideration. And you for, you forgot to mention the district heating, Duncan, in that context too. Yeah. Well, well, it's funny because we use PHPP um, for uh, modelling uh, and uh, a multi-story block, which which you guys know about. Gave a really good, really good output. Sarah um, Price's working with us on it was just brilliant. This is just great. Quite nice. Some of the people we've managed to invo- involve in the projects are a bit like Avengers Assemble. Like, it's amazing. Yeah, you've got a real it's really good, isn't it? Like um, ETD and stuff. So interestingly, what we did down there is we were getting was again of orientation because of glazing, because of pipe runs that might not necessarily were insulated. We were having problems with overheating that we we had to rectify through additional measures about encapsulating pipes and so on. So so yeah, it's something that is becoming forefront of our mind in what and how we're designing just now. Which uh, and I, I I'm not sure <laughs> not sure others are if if they're even at all considering that. So so is that you? Acknowledging the overheating issue because of the the measures that you're taking in light of a traditional Scottish summer yeah, in all I its think, glory. I think what we have to do, and, and, and apologies for hogging the hogging the conversation. No, no, this is important, Duncan. Yeah, I, I think what we have to do is is take one of the key things that Richard and I both agree on is is um, well, we, there are very few things we disagree on, but one of the things I think we both want to make sure that we do is we plan for tomorrow. Yeah. So something a bit kind of cliched, but if we're installing an investment package of measures, is it good for today? Sure, yeah, fuel poverty, decarbonisation, uh, the main the main factors. But what happens if in ten or fifteen years' time we've got double the rainfall we have here in Scotland, which is which is possible? Uh, and what what happens if we've got you know double the amount of thirty degree? Um, it doesn't have to be forty degrees here. We just have to get you know a new bill. Um, it's well insulated, and 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 I can tell you, there's a significant proportion of the days that are, that we go to bed at night, and it's high twenties. So we've got to consider that because if you're putting vulnerable people into a property, many of whom might be older or frail, you know that's almost comparable with fuel poverty. You know, you have to think about right, what is it? What what are things going to be like in ten years' time? Now we put a Marley roof on, we put an EWI system on. Those things are thirty. 60 year lifespan so you've got to consider that now because what you, what you don't want to be doing is retrofitting in 10 15 years time because you didn't have the foresight to look at what you you, you could be doing one of, one of the nice little things that i'm trying to do just now and you might think it's overkill i don't think you will but you know we've got a project where, we're, where i'm trying to install um we're not might not necessarily put overshading measures in just now but we're putting the basis so i'm putting what's called a patris which is a little fixing that goes into the um, through the um, the insulation into the substrate that will allow us to put on um, uh, allow us to put on some form of shading or um, shuttering a point in the future if we need to do that. Um, now, if we don't What's do that, that just now, I mean that's that is unusual, you know. Well, I am unusual, Jeff, as you will know. For range of <laughs> right. I would say, you know, I know I keep on harping on about this, but you know, uh, and it's just one example. But if we are able to to find a real monitored case study of a building in London, not particularly low energy, uh, unoccupied, unheated, that was hitting an operative temperature of forty seven and a half degrees when it was twenty eight point nine outside, right? Um, you know, this is an issue. I think, in, it, depending on the design of the building, it's an issue for today. You know, yeah. 
Yeah, and that's just to be clear, that's not an if that is referring to an actual specific case in which that happened, which I'm sure Jeff has mentioned plenty of times, but he definitely mentioned it in the overheating episode from this time last year. Right, just before we get into the weed here, because I think I love hearing this, Duncan, because you're doing the, uh, you're applying the rule like getting things wrong is part of the process and building in a future where you need to adapt something a la uh, Bill Bordas and Adrian Lehman's advice. So today we're, as obviously we're talking about River Clyde Holmes and the strategy, because I'm sure we'll have introduced that in the recorded introduction. But we wanted to talk about like what it is that you're doing. So we're here with both you and Richard. Do you want to sort of set out what it is that you guys have undertaken? Because we've alluded to it on the podcast before. The the bits you've you've trailed to us in private conversations, it sounds amazing. You've got an article coming out in Passive House Plus shortly, which I've read a draft of it. I mean, it, what you guys are doing, it sounds phenomenal. But can I just give you the floor to start banging on about it? Because it's amazing. Yeah, sure. No, and, and you know, firstly, thanks, thanks for inviting us on. It's, it's it's good to be back. What I'd just like to do is take a take a step back a wee bit. And if you don't mind, if that's okay, and, and, and talk about two things. Well, first thing is that Richard and I work for a, an association, housing association, about six and a half thousand homes, the west of Glasgow, um, an area which is quite unique actually, because it, it, it's kind of like a mini, you know, a little mini city with um, with the estuary of the Clyde and the hills in the back. So it's quite a, a unique little uh, little area. Um, but. The, the important thing is, as an association, we we have a, a an executive leadership team and we've got a board. So the things that we talk about, I just want to caveat, the things that we talk about today are the things that we would be putting to our board and looking to um, to implement, but it would be their decision. We, we are, I'm a sort of middle manager in the organisation and and um, ultimately these these uh, these organisations have checks and balances and, and, and boards and, and, and leadership team, but it's up to me to, and Richard to make these coherent arguments. But... One of the things that really interests me on the LinkedIn debate just now, right, is you've got this argument between, well, first of all, hopefully we've, we've, we've kind of spelled the hydrogen myth and that nobody's really interested in that anymore. Now, but you've got this this argument between heat pumps work, no, they don't, heat pumps work, no, they don't. It's, it's a bit boring, right? The, of course heat pumps work. Of course they'll work better in certain circumstances where they're designed and, and, and installed better. But the problem we have isn't with the technology, it's with the energy price. Yeah? We're, we're trying to mitigate all these factors because we've currently, I'd be wrong here, but as of last week, the average electricity price in the UK is 36 pence a kilowatt hour. That's the issue, right? Not the heat pumps work. If, kilo, if, if electricity was 5 pence a kilowatt hour, nobody would care about how well we care about how we'll install the you're right, it's the elephant in the room, yeah. I think we have to recognise that before heat pumps work, you know, local heat networks work, but it's the context of the dust transition. When we're moving away from fossil fuels, which are still cheaper, about 8 to 10 pence kilowatt hour for gas, and moving to electricity is the primary factor, whether it's in direct or, or heat pumps through a COP, that's the issue. So how we can argue to the nth degree about how much we insulate or how well we design heat pumps but we're still at this position of being, or we're still exposed to energy security or insecurity, really, because depending on how, how high up that price goes, then it could negate all the good work you do about trying to decarbonise buildings. So I think that's what we have to recognise first is um, 
It's the cost of energy rather than the type of measures. But I think what we're focused on is how we, we're probably more pragmatic in our approach, but it's centered on how we can provide energy, let's put it that way, as opposed to just be a recipient of it. Is that fair to say, Richard? I think so. And I think the balance for us is a holistic view of comfort and a holistic view of affordable warmth within the context of affordable living. And, and the role of, you know, as, as Duncan touched on about, you know, our role at, at its core is to be a social landlord. And, you know, Duncan took us back a step, you know, I'll take us back a step further, which is to say this conversation started with us looking at, as an association, how do we tackle, let's say, the problems, you know, at first what are considered problems, what is in the horizon in terms of strategy and outcomes and the requirement of social housing stock, whether that be, you know, heat and building strategy, whether that be housing 2040, whether that be each two targets. How how do we as an association get to that point? And quickly we we, we realised, and this probably actually predates, it doesn't predate my relationship with Duncan, but it predates uh, Duncan's joining the association where, you know, there's a, there's that recognition of challenges, the solutions and, and how we deliver those solutions and the best way to deliver those solutions probably coincide with Duncan joining us and helping us um, consider those and, and move towards achieving them. But ultimately, th- there is a there's an opportunity for Riverclade Homes, which is broadly the same challenges and opportunities that many other associations have. We have, as Duncan touched on, a uniqueness in terms of some of our geography, but our challenges in meeting standards and the type of stock that we have is very, very similar to most associations different proliferations of so some will have more if not almost exclusively tenemental stock other will, others will have a mixture of more rural stock but ultimately in a, in a broad sense the core of what is our stock is the core of most of social housing across, across Scotland so if we can crack the nut for us in terms of what we desi- what we design what those outcomes are how we deliver that all of those are the same challenges that, that other associations have and, and finding the scalability of the solution is as much a driver for us as, as is actually tackling our own individual problem for that very reason. The question that Duncan poses around heat and the, the interaction between that is the, is the constant dilemma of what is the right archetype? Is it an archetype which is solely designed to, you know, completely minimise um, consumption and is there a, a, a tipping point somewhere in the middle where you take it so far if you can deliver affordable heat into that the cost and the amount that you put into the the fabric of the building then becomes a relative concept so as simple terms possible do you need to if it's totally locally produced green energy do you need to do retrofit I'm not advocating we don't do any retrofit there's a relativity in concept there between the amount you put into the fabric and the provision of and cost of affordable ones. And, and that's the that's the metric that we're, we're trying to build out a solution for. I think it's fascinating. And I think I would encourage our, our listeners as well to think about these questions and not just uh, in the social housing uh, uh, space too. I say that from experience of somebody living in in, the, in an apartment, a low energy apartment in the private res, uh, rental sector, uh, where we have a a combined heat and power plant heating the apartments and we've got one electricity supplier we cannot change supplier we're not allowed to and we're paying in ireland uh way above market prices we're paying uh, in, of the order of about 50 cents per kilowatt hour for electricity and we've no option to, to, to change it so i think uh these questions 
they are fundamental questions for things like district heating and for, for energy more broadly. We, you know, we need to tackle these things. You know, it's it's amazing to see kind of good Samaritans like RCH coming along and proving that it can be done, but we need regulation to enforce to force everybody to to, to avoid price gouging and, and ripping the arse out of it. Yeah, no, I agree. Yes. And I, 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 I totally agree. And I think Richard's right. What what I've learned, I think, in terms of my journey. Is we spoke to Peter Rickaby, you know, a year ago or so, and, and Peter was in London and he said, you know, it's so difficult. And I think where we have to adopt a, a kind of pragmatism is what do we do and where do we do it? And I think, if I'm honest about myself, we're probably going through a couple of transitions. Um, the first was back, you know, um, 10, 15 years ago around focus on district heating and low carbon or, or heat networks, not necessarily low carbon heat networks, but, but district heating. And then gradually around more how we retrofit and decarbonize buildings through 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 efficiency measures. And the reality is it's probably a mixture of both, but still never going to solve a hot water problem. I'm a bit worried about how we think that heat pumps might be the panacea when there's a lot of things we have to consider about how we're supplying hot water, how we're monoblocking stuff at the back. All these things are all, you know, we can overcome them. But my concern is about how this is done in a way that's good for the consumer, I hate to use that word, or good for the end user. So for me, the the pragmatic approach to saying, right, what buildings can we take down to deeper retrofits where we can put in place fairly robust measures to to reduce the demand? And where can we just not do that? And a good example probably is is sort of 1919 tenements. Everyone knows of the kind of particular funds for those in Glasgow and the west of Scotland, of which I think there's a couple of hundred thousand. You know, very difficult to try and decarbonize those buildings in a in a sustainable way, in a practical way from from the legal issues we have, from the technical issues we have. In fact, you know, we're standing in a house a couple of weeks back where this horrific detail that meant that the house opposite the the eave came right down almost into the window of of the house. It was sort of a adjacent teacher. I was thinking it's just impossible to try and insulate. And even even if it was the complexities around ownership within that block, the financing of that, how do we do that for people who might not necessarily who, who are homeowners but might not necessarily have the capital to put into a project? I think I think what we have to do is adopt this pragmatic approach to say, look, you know, we can either ramp up or ramp down green energy or green depending on how far we can get with the decarbonisation of the building, and that's the pragmatism Richard is talking about, where we, we we're not. That are slaves to a specific standard or a specific approach, that it's a blend. And the sweet point of the blend is around how much that costs and what we can do. But Jeff, totally take your point. And I think I'll maybe let Richard come in and, and talk about what, what our idea of ESCOs, I suppose, for want of a better word, or our investment vehicles are. I think what you've got to make sure is that you're not simply replicating what exists in the market just now, um, in the energy market just now, which, which clearly doesn't work. <laughs> we did a little figure on the back of a, a cigarette packet last week to say that, that I think it was for the magazine, Jeff, that Inverclyde is a really small local authority. Uh, and over a decade period, a billion pounds will come out of Inverclyde into the energy company pockets. Yeah, that's insane. When you think that we, when we talk about poverty or you know social justice or economic development or any of these things, you, you've got to look at what's going out the, the authority and, and say, hey, hang on a minute, you know. Unless you're going to tackle that, you're always going to lose. Well, I'm curious about, because the pair of you have laid out what is essentially a zero-sum situation. 
And that's something that everyone's stuck with. And I definitely do want to get into finance because I've got to be in my bonnet about that at the moment because we'll get into that. Well, like, how are you weighing up the tension between, or how are you thinking about like longer term investments? You've got this, you've got this challenge where you're trying to feel out what the right sort of response is. Do we reduce demand or do we increase energy supply, whatever that is? But then you can focus on heat or electricity, and they require very different kinds of infrastructure and very different strategies different kinds of disruption, different kinds of investment. Like, how are you contemplating that? I suppose that, you know, the solutions and the answers to that, as you say, are, are, are actually different. It's how they're knitted together, you know, and and ultimately the the consequence or the recognition we have is, is what's partly broken in the system of provision of energy and consequently heat in the UK is the nature and the level of profit that comes around that and there are other there are other factors in terms of calculation but 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 it being a for-profit is some of the challenge and therefore the, the solutions for us are you know the solutions for heat is quite different in the sense heat is fairly local you know you can produce effectively warm water um, and run pipes in a local uh, construct in a fairly efficient manner so, so that's, you know, localization of heat is, is one of the outcomes. It's more deliverable probably in, a, in an area like Inverclyde than it perhaps is in, in other geographies. And that's to do with density and, and, and closeness of actually what the region is. You know, smaller partial solutions can be considered for, for that localization of heat. Energy is a different question, but actually, and one of the things where I think it's fair to say is investigating, we're trying to understand um, the viability of how you provide the electricity to that system, and Queen's Key is a great example of that, where Queen's Key are currently paying eight and a quarter pence, or the customers of Queen's Key are paying eight and a quarter pence, predicated on them paying 24-ish pence for um, the electricity feeding the system, whereas there is a, a effectively a sum somewhere in the region of seven, per, seven pence for a unit of electricity if you can generate that and direct wire it into your heat system and therefore, the cost of heat is is almost entirely negligible. There, there, of course, needs to be consideration of system and, and owning the whole system built into that end customer price. And there's a whole calculation to be done around that. There's also a step beyond that, which is actually the, the regionalization of that electricity. And that probably requires a different consideration of model. And, and in a Scottish context, I always use the example of, of Partick Housing Association. But, you know, having just been down to London and spoken to Soho, for example, they, they have the same challenge, which is effectively an inordinate uh, value of land relative to social uh, incomes. Therefore, the ability to individually and being part of a wider city, the ability to influence and create some form of coherent district heating energy and, and, and heat system is very difficult to do. So how do we combine those outcomes and say, well, if there is an opportunity in, in areas of land to oversupply electricity, how do we feed that directly to those where the only likely solution for them will be individual heat pumps? So how do we take where it is cheap and provide that as a, as a solution? And that's a massively complex area because you're into the, the, the realms of 
of actually generating and selling electricity, which puts you into, you know, the realms of the massive power companies. So the solutions aren't simple to do that, but a similar or a solution of uh, direct wire and 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 um, a customer is probably the only way that we're going to get a just transition because the opportunity of controlling a market that's already out of control is virtually impossible. I don't I don't see a solution for that. So there has to be an alternate solution in, in figuring out whether Inverclyde as, as a wider region or, or Scotland as a wider region can start to provide that to itself and, and maybe further afield is something we're trying to establish if if there's a I, I don't suppose I need to establish if there's a market, but what mm-hmm. we do need to establish is how would Scotland play a part in that and how would Inverclyde directly benefit from that? So that's like localization and collectivization in lieu of nationalization? Yes, absolutely. To to the extent of regionalization in, in, insofar as we can probably call the UK a region. So regionalization of energy in the construct of the wider global problems that exist around heat and energy and it's finding the right mix of, of, of what fits for each area. And, and when you come back to the wider question that took us to this, if you take a design-led approach, what you want to be designing is areas, not buildings. Um, and that's where that's where lo- you know, local authorities or housing associations or in combination have, have an incredible opportunity because they're a key stakeholder in that that they can give certainty to the operation of and then it's just about the relative scale of that that as a potential solution. And I say that as if that's a really straightforward thing to do. There's a huge amount of complexity in that, but the idea is fairly simplistic. And if we can keep it to the simplistic idea um, or the outcomes to, towards a simplistic idea, the better the plan will be. It's interesting that you touched on the, this, the direct wire issue. Um, many years ago, uh, no, I'm, I'm not as up on this as I should be in an Irish context, but many years ago, there was a an Irish... PV expert called Tim Cooper, who got a license because he was generating electricity and there was no ability to export it at the time. So he, uh, this is a building that was done in 1994 that's referenced in the new issue of the mag. We actually published this 2007. We wrote about it the first time around um, and um, uh, called the Green Building in the the, the modern day Gamara of Ireland, which has uh, uh, been ruined by mainly English and Scottish to some extent, Stag Dooms and Hen Knights, Temple Bar. Yeah. And um, he ended up getting a license uh, to to sell electricity, but only I think it was at first uh, only within the confines of the building because you have this pri- what we call private wire issue, which I guess is the same issue. In other words, the way it worked in Ireland at the time was that if you had a road between two buildings or between your generator, for instance, and the the end use, uh, you couldn't sell the electricity, which is maddening and 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 very kind of restrictive i don't know where that's at now but are you encountering the same kinds of issues i mean i think in the first instance what, what we are doing is we're looking at how do we power our heat network that's that's our first question the the second question where all of that complexity will be will be walked through is is the regionalization and in effect you know my understanding is that when you come to sell to somebody else so when you're directly wiring your heat source, that's that's not a problem. Where we come to say whether that be to another association or another individual, um, we are selling you electricity, then that's a problem. And, and and we need to walk through that as as a set of problems and therefore solutions. I have at the back of my he- head some form of solution about um, providing a pathway to other organisations to 
effectively, albeit through sleeve contracts, direct wire themselves, uh, and then them providing it through rent. But th- that is a that is a hypothetical conversation at the moment, and and something that is our ambition rather than a reality, Jeff. You know, so first problem is how do we solve the problems for Inverclyde? That's that's the first problem we're trying to tackle around heat and energy. Um, the wider construct and the wider opportunity is is a is a a challenge that we face next. Well, then I wanted to bring it back a bit more locally. I was curious to know what the uh, the residents thought of this. I mean, how how are you communicating these things? Because it's a journey. It's not just uh, you're not coming up with a, a solution. In fact, you you have challenges as well. So I'm just curious to know how everyone is is responding to it. Do they understand it? Do they support it? Are they are they worried? Or what, what's the general perception? So where we have community engagement at the moment, it, it is on. Um, a project by project basis, and and, and maybe Duncan can talk about, um, you know, our project, you know, where he's incorporating microgrids as, as a solution, because, you know, um, you know, I think that's a, an interesting project in in terms of how PV fits into the economy and the community and everything else. Anyway, but I think, you know, what we're doing just now is is that project led approach and and particularly where the engagement is probably different to most associations around what we're trying to deliver is, um, you know, we're coming to them saying, you give us your your design principles. So we're asking them key questions around how they feel about place, how they feel about uh, decarbonisation, how how they, you know, what what problems they face in terms of fuel poverty, a bunch, you know, even even down to things like how do you feel about car clubs and and you know and, and is that something you would engage with as a concept? And what we're really doing there is we're setting out the parameters that allow us to then start to design the solutions for them. We haven't, we're not yet at the point where we're communicating a, an Emberclyde wide plan. So so the community, in a broader sense, isn't being engaged because I mean partly to be fair we're not necessarily ready to do that and there is a coherent approach around things like heat strategy that is governed by Inverclyde Council and and you know the solutions that they adopt also are, are an ongoing conversation so we're not yet ready at ready to do a full engagement with the wider community because it's still to be determined what those designs are you know how we fund that you know all of those all of those questions because if you're coming to me somebody comes and chaps my door and says you know what's your opinion on how we decarbonize your home or how we tackle fuel poverty or any of those things my first question is well what what, what is it you're going to do so we're taking it on the project basis where we have a plan we want them to inform um and and the wider question of how we engage with the communities is a second question at the moment as duncan touched on earlier there is a pathway for us which is setting out what our own strategies are, what our own plans are, what that means for our stock and agreeing that through our, our board, you know, our executive team first and, and our board second to provide that framework for us. And that probably means agreement to the vehicles that deliver these these um, solutions as well, you know, whether that be the finance, whether that be the design, whether that be the actual heat and, heat and power networks themselves. So we are still on that as a journey. Um, and what we're doing just now is tackling those that need to be tackled first effectively. And community engagement is invariably a huge part of, uh, part of that to get it right. It, it, you know, all of those metrics, um, it's just not quite as holistic as, as maybe the question implies, Alex. So you mentioned something interesting there about having to engage with the council or local authority. Like, what's that been like? Are you able to talk about that 
because you know this is you potentially wresting control of local people's lives away from them and you know it's a bit passport to pimlico potentially if that means anything it's an old dealing comedy for for them that don't know about a, an area of london in pimlico that in fact that they declared themselves a, a democratic republic yeah. effectively didn't they yeah 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 thank you jeff like what's it like dealing with the the council local authority yeah so do i come up i probably view myself as 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 first a housing housing guy and 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 I've worked a long time in local local government. We've we've had really constructive meetings uh, with the local authority. I mean, what, what I would say is, you know, this isn't this isn't just our problem. Yeah, you know, every you know, decarbonisation of the buildings, whether it be public or private, whether it be social or or, or um, you know or, or mortgaged, um, the council has the same you know the same challenge, and it's and it's a big challenge. And unless, as Richard and I often say, unless you so I get out of the change, you know, metaphorically speaking, and start to try and survey where you're trying to go. Um, you know, you're going to be in, in in trouble. And I think no, I've been very impressed by by um, uh, by uh, by a number of people that we met. Um, it's a difficult listen. You know, it's, I'm not going to bash local authorities because it's a difficult job. You know, they, their remit has expanded beyond um, probably what what anyone would have thought 20 years ago. Um, continually underpaid, under-resourced. So, you know, I, I think that the people I've met have been pretty impressed with. Can I just can I just make a point here? Because this, I think this is important, and it, it's I'm not trying to ignore the previous conversations that have gone on, but I want to put it a bit of context to essentially what we're trying to do here. Um, Michael Gove stood up a few months back, it might even have been a year ago, um, and he berated social landlords about um, that mold. And yeah, there are some social landlords who have not taken happiness and mould seriously and some practices and processes which which have been really poor and they absolutely should be called out for that. But for Michael Gove to stand up and say that dampness and mould are in some way a systemic issue about social landlords as a dereliction of duty. You know, Michael Gove's been part of a government in the last 13 years, which has overseen an energy market which is far from socially just. And that is that the root cause of the problem here. If we could provide energy in a socially socially sustainable way, um, in an environmentally sustainable way, at a local, a regional level, for five, six, seven pence a kilowatt hour, dampness and mould and fuel poverty go away. They just disappear, mainly, which is what the Danes do. And to talk about the issue, it's a little bit of what you and I have talked about before, Dan, about the individualisation of the problem, yeah? Pushing it back on to the individual consumer, oh, switch off your appliances and all that bollocks, right? This is a government who has overseen a pretty toxic energy market, which doesn't serve anyone just now. Yeah, and we're all trying to work out how best to get a COP and a heat pump because of it. Not it doesn't do what the, the, the what it should do. And I would argue that what Richard is describing, what we're trying to do, is is put back in some form of socially just way of heating your home. Is that so much to ask? The Danes do it. Some of the Germans do it. You know, the French do it, albeit with you know nuclear, but. I think we just have to have to retain that. So we're trying to provide energy in a just, sustainable, within that just transition we talk about. It's affordable, sustainable. I think barriers come down. And I think that if we're talking to tenants, tenants aren't really interested in technology. They're interested in the end game. What am I going to pay? Uh, you know, some tenants will be interested more in the environment than others, but the vast majority of people are interested in how it's going to impact them. 
Sorry, I'll get off my soapbox. No, well, I, I think you could have stayed on your soapbox a while longer, uh, Duncan, because uh, the the other element there that 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 you um you you didn't include was uh what the, what the conservative governments have done uh, since Thatcher's time to uh, to hollow out uh, uh, the the social housing sector you know the housing associations the local authorities to undermine the business case for the provision of social housing and for the invest and for investment in social housing right yeah, absolutely and and i think we're still you know this is one of the issues that we talked about earlier on about the right to buy the legacy of the right to buy within any local authority area that we thankfully managed to stop the right to buy back in 2014 i can't remember actually now. Um, but that still poses significant challenges from uh, from an engagement perspective, trying to uh, bring tenants. And a lot of the time, social, a lot of the time, landlords, absentee landlords, um, landlords who might not have the best interests of you know tenants in society at heart. So that's 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 a that's still a real you know a real um, a, a real big problem for us in in terms of how we how we address that. But yeah, I mean, you know, I th- I think that what what we're trying to do is 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 navigate this way to net zero in a way that's we're talking in Scotland a lot. I'm not sure if, if if you guys down south use it, but we we use the term the just transition. So essentially, what we can't do is through decarbonisation, is is push that onto some of the most vulnerable, of which landlords like ourselves um, have a disproportionate amount of 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 customers who are in that in that bracket. So I think for us, it's about how do we get energy prices? How do we get heat? an affordable rate because it's a much wider benefit to society. There's a good um, report out by BRE two weeks ago, last week, week before, um, and I think we all know the figures that have been quoted, two and a half billion pounds in terms of the impact on the NHS. I think that's just in England, don't think that's in Australia, it's England and Wales, from a, you know, from uh, from the buildings. Okay, that's not just damping mold, there's a lot of things in there but i think we have to look at the wider context of society and so the, the other point i wanted to make was we're not talking about businesses here right because businesses are important especially local businesses who are energy hungry who are heat hungry of which there are some many in fact these these companies have seen a 500 percent increase in heat costs over the last 18 months we're talking about fuel poverty clearly one of the big the, the, the big issues but we have to talk about you know, the local economy and, and, and local sustainable development in the economy. If we have a market which is ambivalent to whether those companies um, thrive or survive, that's not a good place to be. One of the things that's always impressed me about the Danish um, model is that they have, you know, sustainable local businesses which have high demand for heat, uh, which they can supply through their heat networks. And that's, you know, we talk a lot about vertical farming being a potential and brownfield areas and, and, and places like the West of Scotland, that's just not sustainable just now if you're using the existing energy model that we have. I, I would just say, and I'll interject here before Richard comes in very briefly, um, and this is something to include in the show notes for sure, Dan. I, I know there's merit in vertical farming, but I cannot take it seriously because of a uh, a, a, a package in uh, in Brassai, the fake current affairs show about um vertical farming where they got science correspondents to talk about uh, you know a, a, an enormous farm in a in a 1 meter wide tube that went up to you know into the atmosphere basically uh so yeah uh i, I know there's merit to it but it's been forever sullied by uh, by in, by the uk's preeminent retired satirist you know well, i think there is definitely scope in that we just need to consider that's a that is a place for innovation 
of a sort we haven't really considered at all. And we don't have to consider it today. We could take it off the, the table pretty quickly because there's we've enough to talk about already. I want to get into finance as soon as we can, though, because there's well, so much I, in that. The, the point I was coming into was, was finance, Dan, so, so let's pretend that was a beautiful segue. To be fair, the point you're touching it on and the point that Duncan's finishing on is about the wider economy and the opportunities that come to deprived areas with heat and energy networks because you know the unregulated nature of those markets, you're able to support local jobs and community wealth building, which is at the core of sustainable communities, which is underpinned by sustainable and healthy homes. So all of that interlinkage of, of what can be delivered is is utterly key in terms of that, you know, the opportunities of heat and energy network. But the point I was going to come into is actually the deliverability of this and the finance of this becomes quite different if you have a complete metric of heat and energy combined to how you pay for a debt. And the modelling of of which, you know, you can consider different models and, and ultimately if you're going to customers whether that be right to buy customers or people living within a hypothetical red line boundary of a regeneration, um, you know, the right to buy being those that are you know, say upstairs and therefore are required to join part of the programme in order for you to get your stock to. But, you know, equally, if there's a wholly owned, privately owned block next door, is it the right thing to do to not bring that in? allow it to benefit from the design economies of scale and all those things. I don't think that would be the right outcome. So uh, a community-based approach to regeneration. But the models of finance are, are quite different. And I think when you take those models to individual customers, there probably needs to be more than one solution for them because what suits them in terms of debt or equity, um, in terms of you know paying back, I think it's fairly well conceived that, you know, in most cases, particularly in, in you know more deprived communities, you want to take away the barriers. So the financial models probably have to replicate a no upfront cost and therefore at best a payment back out of the subsequent saving. Um, and for RSLs, the model is probably slightly different in the construct of actually the model for us, you know, probably moves away from uh, by and large from, from debt and equity. Um, as its core purpose to longer-term funding models, bond-style funding models of, say, 35, 40 years. But add to that the idea that you have, you know, more than just your rents as an income and, and a means for paying that off. If you're also an energy provider, what that financial model looks like is completely different again. So, you you know, and the cost of that finance is also lower because you're borrowing against income streams, you know. So us, us providing, a you know, as part of our solution-based approach in terms of design and making sure that the retrofits are the right thing and how those are heated for communities is the right thing, um, starting with us first. The, how we pay for that and the finance models is also an intrinsic piece of work for us. And and ultimately, again, I go back to the point I made earlier, the solutions that will work for us will be the solutions that work for everybody. And funneling that through a procurement channel to standardise outcomes and take away risk is another part of the modelling. So once you figure out how to pay for it, well, sorry, once you, once you figure out what the design metrics are, you can standardise the process of delivery, which gives assurance to the finance markets 
and allows you to then wrap in things like carbon offsetting because there's a huge opportunity, particularly in social housing, to consider how carbon offsets play a part in that and all of that pre-assurance of the right methodology and model gives that level of assurance to the finance markets in more than one way. That's really interesting. Like I think the scope as well for where you've alluded to involving the wider community in your plans, maybe not as a, a first phase, is a really interesting one too, because you know, that's in the terms of capital, you know, this is a diversification which mitigates some of the risk involved in the process and enables growth, which is a perverse thing to introduce into this. But, you know, in terms of service, yeah, fair play, we've got to roll with it. So I've alluded to a conversation I had with a, a housing association FD in, uh, over the summer where he found, he put together the design, you know, the strategy. He found the finance. He worked out how to make it work within whatever bounds, you know. And then he put it to his board, so he told me. And his board recoiled from it because it was new to them. They they hadn't seen a system like that. They couldn't appreciate it. Like they, they didn't have the wherewithal to be able to appreciate what was in front of them. And pretty much rejected it out of hand. Certainly didn't give it a fair go. How do folk get around that? Like, are you, how are you guys getting on with presenting it to your board? What are they open to innovation that makes them feel uncomfortable? Like, how did you sell it? And I'm, I'm asking on behalf of anyone else who's working in this industry, because how do you sell an idea to someone who just doesn't get it or doesn't want to get it or doesn't care about whether they do get it or not because they're going to retire in a year? Uh, yeah, I mean, so I suppose there's a few aspects and I, I need to be careful of, uh, presuming outcomes, which which um, or or giving the appearance of presuming outcomes, because I certainly don't. And where uh, we, we, if you happen to be indiscreet at any point, I can always overdub something. So uh, <laughs> speak with with freedom and candor, and we can always mitigate your worst errors. As long as I get to pick what you cut in over me, that's fine. Um, I mean, I think there is a a balance for us, which is that we have a really good board, a board that is forward looking and a board which is open to opportunity because they recognise the specific challenges that Inverclyde and, and indeed Riverclyde Homes as a consequence face. And therefore, it's probably how we've done it is we've simply spoken to them, right? And we've introduced ideas and concepts and we're only at a certain point in that journey, right? So as Duncan touched on earlier, we don't want to go too far in, in, in terms of overstating all of the things we categorically will do because a lot of it requires continued cooperation and continued consent from, from our governing uh, body, uh, which is our, our board. I think the opportunity for boards, will some boards are quite professional, professional people who through their work lives will, will value risk and, and uh, you know have a legal background, have a finance background, will, will, will give great assurance. Some boards are a lot more local, and that's not to specifically to say that local boards aren't good. They bring an entirely different metric to it. But conceptually, they're probably going to find it more difficult to consider risk um, in the same way somebody who considers risk all day, every day um, as part of as part of their job. They then go to an evening meeting and, and are asked to consider risk. I think the outcomes and the challenges are usually the thing that people need to do, but I think there's a phase of work probably before that. I think, you know, when I've made this point to a few associations, the bodies effectively that work on behalf of, of 
associations locally to corral and, and funnel messaging to say, you know, what we can do, what we can offer is a degree of consultancy, for want of a better word, to get boards and to get staff to a different level of understanding. And we can condense down probably what are very quite complex areas into a board picking its own design principles. In other words, simply telling telling its itself and, and making audible to the staff, well, these are our concerns. These are the areas that we would see huge benefit on. And, you know, broadly, you know, let's say, let's make a presumption. Most boards will say, if you're bringing us a solution that tackles fuel poverty, we will consider that because that is, it's not our highest, it's one of our highest areas of, of risk and concern as a, as a board of an RSL. But the questions that sit under that are around, well, how do you feel about decarbonisation? How do you feel about climate mitigation? How do you feel about embodied carbon? How, you know, all of those levels of questions might not have coherently been asked of them, and therefore it's difficult for the staff of the association to understand. And all we would, you know, the first step, even, even before bringing in some form of consultancy, is for a linkage between the staff and the board around what is our what is our outcomes and, and and what is it you want us to tackle because our proposals and our designs can then reflect that so so there's no point in us coming saying actually as a as a staff we're really interested in decarbonization and we're going to put heat pumps in everywhere and the board's saying well no because you know our our driver is fuel poverty and that's there isn't a solution for that yet you, you you're going to exacerbate that problem so Getting that conversation between boards and staff, I think, is the first step. I think then having coherent plans, which which you know we can help with, and um, in some cases are already having those conversations. You know, those are the outcomes that come next. But be, before all of that comes, that first question, and on a couple of occasions, we, we've offered to simply go and facilitate the conversation for people to allow them to get to the to to the part of making design-led solutions you know let's get them on in the right conversation first so what does that look like i don't want to be too pedantic but how do you even start a conversation well this is a thing that alex and i do like because often when you ask these difficult questions the first response is verbal garbage because they haven't ever considered a real response you know you feel it emotionally you've had ruminations and thoughts happening but actually being asked a direct question and creating a space for that. So how, do, how have you guys, specifically, what did you guys do to engage your board and get them on board in what amounts to actual discourse? Yeah, so, I mean, it, it's quite straightforward for us in, insofar as we've introduced them to the concepts of energy, the opportunities, um, the challenges in terms of what our stock faces, you know, being uh, ex-stock transfer and, and recognising that, a joined up approach, approach between regeneration of areas, heat and energy, or, or comfort, affordable warmth, actually becomes comfort at a certain point in time as the world heats up, or depending on what region you're in. But comfort within within the homes and the long term sustainability and viability of of the organisation are all interlinked. And when you start to consider the cost and volume of voids being returned because people can't afford their home, the standard of that coming back, but it's got dampness and mould. All of those are conversations and challenges that, that the organisations are seeing day in, day out. But it's how do you link that conversation, the real challenges that are probably being presented one way or another to a board through the metrics that are presented to a board and link that to the question of 
the right choice for investment in doing that now rather than separating them as concepts and designing the wrong solutions. So I, I think it's, it is about, for, for us, it is about linkage and offering the conversation around here are, here are how we plan to tackle our, our solutions. But my point is it's a journey. It's not a, it's not a one-off meeting. It's not simply going and asking for consent to do something. There is a, a, a degree of conversation about what the challenges are so that the board itself can come to the right solutions uh, and we can then adapt our model to, to consider our own boards and input into that. Yeah, and you get their attention by talking about money. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'll just give you my perspective is because I'm also, a, like a lot of people who work in social housing, I'm a, I'm a board member over at Elder Park Housing Association and Govins, another housing association. And, and, and there's a kind of family connection there. That's that's where I, that's where I come from. And just, and, and Dan and I spoke about, you know, the issues that that financial director had. I, I, I would argue that, you know, the boards are there for a really, a really good reason. There's checks and balances. They're almost a bit like the parliament and the upper house. You know, within an organisation, they make sure that your management team are are making the decisions. And you're you're as like as a board member, you're kind of custodian of, you know, those 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 decisions. And what I would say is, you you have to be across the level of investment required. And as Richard quite rightly talks about sustainability from a from a business perspective, we talk about sustainability from an environmental perspective, but what is a sustainable business model? Because associations are businesses, albeit not for profit. So so these 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 people in charge have to be across that because you know what I would say is if if you're not looking at these solutions, then what what do you propose? You know, net zero is going to cost housing associations more than they can afford. That's the ugly truth of it. How are you going to afford it? If I'm bringing something to you and you're saying no, well, what do you want me to do? You know, and and I think you you can't have both. You can't be a custodian in that board. And luckily, you've got a really progressive uh, board, you know, really good, um, really progressive management team uh, uh, as well. So we're in a good place. On Elder Park, where I work, is in a good place as well. There's a good accountability, a good strategy there. But if if you're not in that environment, then then what? Then what, 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 what is your plan? Because I, I actually worry that a lot of smaller associations who might not be able to make these strategic links and might not be able to, to, and that's through no fault of their own. It's very difficult working in social housing. I, I worry that you might find in three, four, five years' time that what is coming up is beyond what they can do. So we need to quickly go from what you're de- de- developing there to developing a kind of a, a blueprint or a, a hackbook or whatever for, for, for other associations and councils and so on to, to follow. Uh, just coming back to the board question, though, I mean, I kind of, when I look at what you're doing and you know, and, and the, the detail of it and how well-rounded and considered it is, I wonder, do your board recognize the significance of this at a national, and I would say even international level? I mean, I think, and does that excite them to think that this could, because, you know, some people don't like to to be the pioneer you know i mean i, I mean i would say that um that while the way you're stitching things together is extraordinarily interesting and and innovative um uh the thing that should reassure people is that that you're using lots and lots of tried and tested uh, approaches you know um and the thing that really impresses me about this is it's this kind of and I think it comes from a place you have to have that expertise and and hard the battle scars behind you to to know how to make this kind of a thing work. But it's that hard headed. It's kind of a mix of kind of um, ethics 
Um, and uh, you know that kind of ethical approach at at the core of it, pragmatism and an ambition, you know, and the kind of a hard headedness all at the same time, which is such a such a weird cocktail. And um, but it's exactly what we need, you know. Well, I think one of the benefits you guys have got is man like Duncan, who specifically I remember talking about him. Duncan is the sort of man who can have a fight in the boardroom, and he's equally comfortable having a fight on site. <laughs> it's the same deal. Like he's got the building experience and he's an economist. Like what the fuck? Where are you going to find another man like that? So it's brilliant that you guys are the pioneers. So thank you. That that's you know I, I do appreciate that. I think I think what you'll find in Richard now is and this is that is a serious point. Right? Those in those in most need of the answers to decarbonize and to end fuel poverty and who have who have the least resources are those that pay our wages. Now, that's quite a difficult thing to come to terms with because you've got to get up every morning and make sure that what you're doing is, is on point. And I think what you'll find is many people in social housing get that. You know, I think most of the people I work with get that, but I think Richard absolutely gets that. I'd like to think that, well, Richard and I have lots of nice offers from other organisations that are on a fairly, uh, fairly regular basis, but both the, the principle of what we're trying to do, which is about something decent and something good, as well as the opportunity, don't get me wrong, there's an opportunity to expand this in, in this in, in this specific organisation. But I think that's a driver for Richard and I. And I'm not trying to be all cliched and American and stuff like that, but, you know, people who are in fuel poverty largely pay our wages. That's a difficult thing to come to terms with. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think... You know, driven by impact is is really where where Duncan and I, um, in our early conversations, and I mean as as a as a relationship, not as as colleagues, uh, probably found some degree of harmonisation in in how we think about the world and the things we want to try and achieve. And therefore, when when Duncan was leaving Riverclyde Homes, I totally accept your point. I, if if I needed a, a a van and and a balaclava to get him on board, then that's what I would have done. But luckily, he, he agreed to to come in without without any drama. So you know, we we do recognise the value, of course, and and what Duncan brings, and and quite the unique, uniqueness of what Duncan brings. I think for us as an organisation, though, you know, taking it back a step from from praising Duncan because you know he's going to be as uncomfortable with that, or at least pretend he is, um, as 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 I am giving him uh, praise. But we speak to each other um, more than I speak to my wife, you know. So you know, being nice to him is is quite uncomfortable. But I think I think for us as as a you know us as an association and what we're trying to do and what we're trying to deliver is is about that impact. It's driven by the opportunities that we have. And 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 I think the opportunities in resource, you know, so our scale allows us, allows me, allows us to be able to bring in people like Duncan and arguably massively underpaid given his skill set, but it allows us to go and um, bring in people like Duncan. And I think when you look at a Scottish context, you know, Scotland has 612,000 social homes. It has over 3,000 associations. And therefore, although RCH represents about 1% of social housing in Scotland, you know, we're still on the larger end of the scale. Regionally, hugely strategically important to Inverclyde, but actually in a national sense, still of a level that we have opportunities that many don't. Our ambition, if we, if we accept the premise of being driven by impact, of course, our first focus is on how do we make things better in Inverclyde. But the recognition of if it works here, it can work anywhere is also a key recognition because 
when we set up the pathways, you know, and, and really that's our aim is to, to help associations like us who can't go out and procure a Duncan, who, who can't, you know, there, there is not enough people that understand the marketplace if everybody goes out and tries to bring in a consultant, is set up those pathways for smaller organisations where if we can condense down into a simple, and I don't mean that sound condescending when I say simple, I mean simple for everybody to understand and to deliver a, a pathway where they answer the questions about what is important to them that allows those design principles to be created, that allows you to procure to a, a recognisable standard and therefore procure a recognisable standard. And that's one of the pathways that we want to help organisations do. And, and, you know, and we are in conversations about setting up that pathway and for that pathway to do other things like uh, bring in carbon offset money to make the delivery of net zero homes cheaper. Part of the work, you know, so you obviously had Scott and Barbara, Barbara Ann on. Um, previously, one of the things that Jeff heard me talk about when we were over in Ireland is the globalisation of supply chain. Well, actually, there are steps before you can globalise a supply chain, which is regionalise it, nationalise it, and then globalise it. But to get anything that conceives the, the opportunity to take that mission-driven economic approach is a pathway that, that everybody can agree on that does the things we say it does. And that's part of the conversations we're having with those guys as well, is, is how do we, you know, so in simple terms, how do we get a pathway that Scotland and Ireland, um, England and Wales can sign up to? And it may be a different standard when you start to regionalise, but how do we create those pathways that allows us to start to control the market and make sure that the outcomes that the market is delivering back to us are the outcomes that we want in terms of procurement? And, and, and that might mean what isn't typical in social housing or even in government procurement or any of those realms, um, picking partners, but it allows you to then control them, you know, to direct inward investment, to direct performance improvement in their products and ensure that those products have been delivered in a sustainable local way, which benefits the community and benefits us in terms of us designing the right outcomes for us. And that doesn't mean procuring individual products at scale. That probably means picking a partner like Mitsubishi or Samsung or one of these organisations on a regional scale and saying, if we all buy products, heat, heat, heat pumps for, for, for the UK and Ireland through you, how do we then get that reciprocal delivery? And one of the stats, one of the stats I love that, that was given to me by, by one of these um, national manufacturing organisations said, in terms of labour um, going into the creation of a heat pump, there's 34 hours of labour, six in manufacture, 28 in sales. So the opportunity for us as, as a procurement pathway to a consistent standard that gives those assurances to the finance markets also creates a different level of opportunity. But it's utterly critical to have that pathway and an understandable pathway for, for associations to follow. Because, you know, go back to where, where I started in this point, because there is only one Duncan Smith. So so how do we how do we scale Duncan? Really that's that's the question. Yeah. And before we move on, we didn't mean to make you feel bad. Richard, we've had other conversations where Duncan sang your praises just as highly and how delighted he was to have a man with your background and experience. I'm not blowing smoke up your arse here, but you come from a different space, not traditional uh, RSL or housing association, which has enabled you to appreciate a 
differently commercial picture, which I think is a really important thing. Like the discussion, so what you described there about looking for opportunities within supply chains to, I mean, who who often thinks about the, the labor required in the sales process and setting that against the, well, uh, the, the cost, labor cost of manufacturer. I'm curious about the offsetting thing because I find I am absolutely dubious. Anytime anyone says offset, I think bullshit because generally offsetting has been utter thing horseshit. But like, I respect you guys, so I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> like that debate me meme. <laughs> right, sorry, Duncan. Yeah, it was just a just a more just think, think direction I work well together because of that. I think he he has a strategic view. I, I'm I'm probably more interested in some of the Jeff and I share a common sort of love of the detail um, because we want to get it right. You know, we want to make sure that you know what we're leaving behind is is good. Just one uh, shout out to so Indie Nature. I don't know if you ever had them on. Um, in fact, I know you've, you've not. Uh, Indie Nature is a local, say, local regional Scottish hemp um, manufacturer of insulation products, and um, they've played home through our subsidiary HFS. Um, have become the first accredited installer of their product in Scotland um, as of this week. So we will now be installing. Um, we're having a limited trial just now, looking at the the um, the options to us. But yeah, the the um, the proposal is to install um, hemp based insulation um, in, 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 our, in our void, or certainly in our retrofit pro, um, program. Light issue with that just now is BBAs and 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 uh, uh, and Trustmark, which I'd spoken to Jeff about. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that'll be resolved by October time. You know, hopefully that shows you the you know progressive nature of what we're trying to do. Yeah, of course, operational carbon is important. Fuel poverty is is, is critical, but we can't keep keep take our eye off you know the embodied carbon issue. It's, it's still a massive issue, and and we're talking about it as much you know probably if not more than operational. That's very interesting. It's it's that space is is transforming, obviously, um, and uh, we will. The point you raised outside of this conversation around. Uh, Trustmark and BBA, it's something we should we should return to actually. And we're looking at similar issues in Ireland. What what Duncan's referring to, I think, is uh, the obstacles that can be put in the way of nascent sustainable product types where they haven't got much of a foothold, and you, you need deep pockets in terms of, and and length, long time periods to to get the necessary certifications in place under the under the certain regime. When I say necessary, I would I would always argue that point. You're talking to someone who at one stage took um. Uh, in in Ireland's case, I uh, I made a complaint to the European Commission on Ireland's anti-competitive use of our version of argument certification in, in retrofits uh, on the Commission's advice, actually, um, and uh, and it's that it was going somewhere uh, up until up until a point when the when the legal intern in the Commission dealing with it got a job with a fancy law firm and then it died in the, it died in the water, unfortunately. You know, you think that they've got this pool of unend of unending bureaucrats in there, um, but it's not true, actually. Um, you know, and they have bigger fish to fry. But no, that that is an issue that needs to be tackled. So it's commendable that you're uh, you're doing that. I want to see the numbers, though. I want to see the actual number crunching, Duncan, to see what kind of embodied carbon reductions you're achieving. You know. Yeah, and and we're quite keen to use uh, pH ribbon for a while. Uh, but and you know, I think when we're looking at we're talking about. The retrofit we need to to make we we can't we just can't be blind to the embodied uh, element to that so yeah I think we'll be using pH ribbon 
Yeah, it'd be good to pick up on that, but I'm pretty confident we can have something in, in, in place by October that satisfies everyone from warrants and, and BBAs. Albeit, I think we know that the BBA process is pretty flawed given what came out of the Grenfell inquiry, but it highlighted the really, you know, again, a broken system. We've we've probably, if you wanted, we can talk about some of our some of the pilot projects I'm delivering just now are really exciting. And I I know that we hate to talk about pilots, but going beyond pilot. But we're really not. What we have to look at is pilots from a sequencing and specification perspective and, and having people like Simon and Joe uh, and Jennifer and all, all that involved in these is really great because what we're trying to get from these pilots is what do we do, when do we do it? It might not all be at the one time, but we need to make sure the sequencing's right and and, and how we're doing that. If I can just give a, you know, 30 seconds, one minute press here what we're trying to do. We we probably have to funnel a lot of our homes down a district route or a heat pump route. But there's also a space in between where it might not be suitable for an individual heat pump and it might not be suitable for a district heating network. So what we are, and also what we have to think about as well, the upgrades to the grid, which is which are really big. We have to upgrade the local grid and there is going to be a cost to, to landlords on that. So what we're trying to look at just now is is the design of heating systems in a really, you know, a really, really detailed way of how we design systems well, but how we might want to look at small scale communal blocks of heating of about 10, 12, 15 units that sit in between this district schemes. We've got district, you know, several thousand units and individual heat pumps. You know, it seems kind of daft that there's nothing in between. So we're trying to work out the in-between bit that might in time connect to a district network. But, you know, in the 15 years before then, we have to find something that's that's viable. And there's lots of other things about air tightness, air quality, you know, ventilation, sizing of radiators. Also, what we don't want to talk about is we've got four and a half thousand boilers in place just now. We can't rip them all in, out just now. How do we find this holding position of designing a, a distribution system, which can accommodate the existing boiler, but might be used to transition to a heat pump in six or seven years' time when that boiler fails? So lots of kind of sequencing things that I think are interesting. If you're up for it, I think this should be a regular thing. If you're up for talking about your progress, because I think it's really, I mean, it makes life easy for us, doesn't it? <laughs> Having a regular feature. But I think uh, more importantly, having a longer story, like a phased story. Because as we said at the start, getting things wrong is part of the process. You don't get everything wrong, but just as you said, the need to install furniture that can accommodate shading should you need it should be mandatory. Like That sort of thinking. And I think hearing how this, this story evolves, because within the political and economic climate, you know, in hushed conversations last year, Duncan, we were talking about this very project with an eye on Scottish independence, which <laughs> scarcely feels further, uh, yeah. like it, it couldn't be further away. Um, so like there's a lot can change in the, the short term. And I think committing to a, a, a process of transparent reporting is massively important. So if you're up for it, lads, like, yeah. we're in. Totally. What what I would say as well is, given the you kind know, of reports of of Pierre Thamar, and you're right, given the, the political situation in Scotland, which which is a bit like talking about Celtic Rangers or Rangers or Celtic, isn't it? It's, it's, it's one of these kind of divisive topics. So, as Richard and I come from either side of the city, uh, I was going to say that politics politics change, but there is only one right answer in that debate, Duncan. Do you know? So uh, the delusions. Anyway, um, but what, <laughs> what, what I was going to say was. You know, Peter Dahmer, if it's to be reported, the conversation he had with Miliband is no one's coming to so no one's coming to help you here, guys. There isn't another regime which is going to radically change how things work, right? We are stuck with a system 
which is clearly broken. And if you're in charge of houses where people can't afford to heat their homes, you're going to have to find the solutions. No one's coming for you. Yeah, straight up. That's the well, problem. on that comforting note, Jesus, Duncan. <laughs> the voice, the voice of doom. Talk about sucking the air out of a balloon. That's like, yeah. uh, what's, it what's it, Patterson out of, uh, of um, Bad's Army? What was it? Oh, Fraser. Fraser. Patterson out of Twilight, yeah? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm getting that. I'm conflating <laughs> different shows. I should yeah, say sucking the air out of the room, by the way, not sucking air out of a balloon. Very strange. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, in all seriousness, so you go back to that point about your board and what you what your what your board's asking or what your board's telling. You. I guess the point I'm trying to make here is, you know, you're going to have to find these solutions because, you know, and if you don't start to innovate, and you're right, if you don't start to make some small failures, how do you learn? How are you going to do this? Um, like I say, we, you know, we, we're going to have to take the baton here. I, I would always be careful to talk about learning from your mistakes because, I mean, like Dan's haircut actually is a, a good example of that. But no, I mean um, that there's a very, there's a massive difference between the kind of approach that, that River Clyde Homes will be taking now, which I would expect you to be limiting the mistakes, frankly, compared to the kind of disasters that we're, the mis- mistakes are everywhere. Uh, it, but the difference is you've already done a lot of the learning, Duncan, you know. Hey, listen, I've, I've made lots of mistakes, not in River Clyde, but, but before. And I think you have to hold your hands up to that. None of us come to, to this point in our careers having been perfect. It's how you, it's how you learn. You're right. It's how you learn from those mistakes. The reason I talk about pilots is it's fine to make mistakes at an individual or two or three unit level. If you can correct it. The point about these pilots is if we're going to decarbonize six and a half thousand homes, yeah, let's learn from a couple of dozen pilots about what not to do, but also what to do. Yeah, and, and how you get it right. Because what I, as, as a responsible investment manager, which is part of what I'm, I can't make these mistakes at scale. That's, that's, that is a dereliction of duty. I think, I think to add to that as well, it's, you know, you're absolutely right, Jeff, because the pathways and the learning is absolutely crucial and and actually the actions that you know we haven't even touched on here when i talk about standardization of well a standard standardization of a standard standardization of an outcome more accurately and what you have is a pathway that leads to that and that involves training and education of the people going on your site in partnership with um organizations like best and and actually having their train the trainer and open approach to making sure the industry gets better is also a critical component in what you deliver being right and tested and understood. So having the right pathway is is the critical point and us getting it right for archetypes, for building types, to make a scalable product effectively, you know, because that's one of the things I talk about locally all the time you know in the office all the time is about creation of retrofit as a product so actually you get to the point where whether that be a private homeowner or a smaller association comes along and says essentially that's my archetype can i take 400 of those pleats and there's an assurance about what they're going to get what impact that's going to have on the community beyond just energy but health well-being all of those other metrics and a funding mechanism that allows that to happen and, and that pathway from making sure what's going in is consistent we can start to consider replication at scale and and you know the, the other thing i always say is i have absolutely no idea how my car works my design parameters where it's shiny and fast and actually you know there are loads of mechanics out there 
who don't know anything about buildings but exactly know how my car works, who have similar design parameters to how I design a car, but we have to take that on board as to what product they want. When you have a design-led approach with the assurance of the outcome, you know, so we buy a badge we know that works in terms of a car, or we buy what we can afford in terms of a badge that works, perhaps, and maybe more accurately. Those are the outcomes that we need to kind of try and get to and, and simplify it for everybody so that we can do this quickly and at scale, because that's really what's needed. I think what's resonated all the way through everything we've discussed is the phrase that you introduced early on that's not unfamiliar to presumably all of our listeners, one of a just transition. All the way through, so chiming with that is the notion of comfort not just being about the temperature. It's about all the aspects of uh, health and well-being, even down to the, the temperature of the space in which you live. I think that's really interesting. And it is why I am looking forward to hearing more about this offsetting scheme because like, I've never met an offsetting scheme I didn't hate. However, that what sounds really interesting about this is if you're generating an income from that, that income is going into making people's lives better. It is not an obfuscatory measure. Like, you know, there, there, there can be consequences further down the line, but this is contributing to making things work for more people rather than just extracting some profit for laugh and seeing what you can get away with which is how we've seen them operate in many other spheres yeah i mean i i don't i don't necessarily debate with the rights and wrongs of offsetting and greenwashing and all of that kind of stuff because this conceptually came about in terms of how do you create an affordable solution Right, and, and we work our way back rather than starting with how do you make offsetting better? How do we provide the financial streams that allows people, you know, of all kinds of of, of home or indeed commercial premises, um, access to something that makes their costs cheaper and makes it a more viable outcome? Yeah. So, so the offsetting for us is about recognition that there are organisations out there who, through no fault of their own at this point, you know, in simple terms. There isn't an electric plane that can fly. Well, I mean, there isn't an electric plane. Really, never mind one that can fly transatlantic. <laughs> so, it, you know, if we accept that people are going to create carbon, but they're also prepared to put money behind other mechanisms in the right way, uh, and we have we already have some great feedback from significant, you know, national construction companies through through no fault of their own create carbon. Right, there is just carbon in the construction process. That's where we are in terms of science and development and everything else. But they are looking to find the right way to offset that month, offset what they're doing and finding the right vehicle for that is critical to them as well because they, they don't want to be putting it into, um, you know, and I was going to give an example there, which is which is the people that we buy our electric cars from, uh, it, it is an example of, you know, a foreign investment with no real visibility of the outcome. Right. If there is a solution for them to have real impactful um, decision making, and the more we do this, and the more that actual uh, ESG measures become a financial metric and a balance sheet metric and a um, stock market metric and all of these things that, that put pressure on organisations that aren't yet doing it, but who could be doing it, if you give them solutions which are local to them in an ideal world, but local to them, as, as I said earlier, Really, the UK can be regionalised when you talk about international companies who will be doing it first, giving them the right pathway to use that money to better people's lives 
you know, realistically, if I'm going to one of my uh, community groups that, that we deal with, we're outlining a project with them and we say, do you want to have a conversation about, you know, the rights and wrongs about carbon offsetting? Or do you want me to talk to you about a product which is going to cut your fuel bill and, you know, your overall fuel consumption by a third is going to make your place look uh, better, is going to, if you're a homeowner in this metric, it's going to make your home more valuable and you don't have an upfront cost for that and maybe even maybe even not a cost at all, depending on what other government grants available. Do you think they care about the rights and wrongs and moralities of which company contributed to that? Or do you think about they care about the outcomes for them and their community and their place? And, and therefore, I, I take the opinion, it's not my place to have that as a moral argument. My job is to deliver for the community I'm here to serve. And, and, and ultimately, if carbon offsetting plays an intrinsic part in that, then, then we will go down that pathway. It's not a moral debate. It's, it's an outcome debate. I would say, for for what little it's worth, that I don't think offsetting is inherently problematic. I think it can be used for good. I think it's useful in the sense that, as you kind of point out, Richard, there's certain activities that you're going to be releasing, emitting carbon uh, for, and it's not necessarily productive to be pursuing absolute on-site carbon reductions at all costs in every situation. Um, so more pragmatic approach uh, can be justified. The critical thing is, and I suppose the key ingredient for me is that you need good people who know there are some their elbow controlling that process, controlling d- where where the point is that you cut off, that you decide it's not acceptable or it's not. If for whatever reason, economically, whatever in terms of the the conditions you're facing, it doesn't make. This is as far as we're going to bring this building or this particular activity, and then we're going to offset, and then we're going to try and offset in the in the right kind of way. Difficulty is then it starts to head into the kind of me being a despot and telling people, uh, you know, this is the way to do it. Uh, and, um, you know, how do you decide who knows what there are from their elbow, basically, you know? Yeah. Well, so leading into your despotic reference, I am closing that can of worms I opened uh, yeah. unilaterally and saying, thank you for joining us today, lads. Uh, we look forward to having you back. I think that's enough for today. We'll carry on the conversation. Uh, thank you for joining us, all them folk listening. Oh, thank you, no. Thanks for having us. Love to come back. So, all right, last message is join ACAN, join the ACB, join the IGBC. All of those are in the notes. Holler at us if you want to talk about uh, anything related to the work, decarbonisation strategy, sustainability strategy, messaging, communications, or even something as mundane as websites. And share it. If you get something out of this podcast, you probably know someone else who will as well. And keep your eyes peeled for the next issue of the magazine with this river, with Plus, with this River Clyde Holmes uh, uh, feature. It's it's a uh, it's a it's an inspiring story. And uh, yeah, if you come to this after that magazine has been published, Jeff will send me a link to the article, and we'll make sure that gets updated in the show notes. I've read a draft, and it's a Bobby Dazzler. Like it sounds brilliant, what you're doing, lads. Like really, really phenomenal work. And we look forward to seeing it replicated elsewhere. All right, cheers. Thanks. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Yeah. And thanks for listening.